morning or good evening, depending upon what part of the globe you're on. Uh, you're here on Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. Very excited to say that I'm joined by Fritz Demopoulos, the founder of many platform companies, joining us live from Hong Kong. Thanks for joining us, Fritz. Guys, it's great to be here. I'm happy to chat. Awesome. So we're going to dig into um, a bunch of what Fritz has created over an illustrious career here, and he's certainly not done, uh, probably just getting started as we dig into it with him. Uh, also, obviously, have Nick Johnson here with me, co-author on Modern Monopolies. Um, but for those of you that don't know Fritz, um, he, you're, you were educated here in the U.S. You were at UCLA Anderson, and that was late 90s. Uh, and then you decided to go to China, right? I mean, how did that how did that compute for you? Had you spent much time there um, growing up or something? But how did the decision to say, "All right, I'm I'm shipping off"? I had never lived in China before. Um, I was an exchange student once in Hong Kong, and when when I was living in Hong Kong, I was very much enamored with the vibe of the region. I was just super excited to figure out a way to get there. Um, and I was lucky that, well, you know, when I was still in graduate school, I mean, I had an opportunity to work for News Corporation. You know, that's part of the, you know, the Murdoch empire. And they were looking for a mm -hmm. few people to send to Beijing to help kickstart some of the operations and investment, you know, strategies in, 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 in the country. And it was just lucky I, I happened to be one of those people. Um, but you know, my initial plan was I thought I'd be in China for a couple of years and then maybe somewhere else for two years and then I'd be back in the States, you know, being a lackey in Southern California fighting, you know, you know, other drivers on the 405 getting to work. But you know, <laughs> that didn't happen. And, you know, I've been in the region now for 22 years. Were you learning Mandarin while you were just, you know, you landed there and you said, OK, now I got to start learning Mandarin. I mean, that's a little bit of a barrier. It is. Um, well, you, you know, what's, well, you know, what's amazing is, you know, I, you know, you know, in some ways we're critical of the communists, but the one thing they do very well is, you know, they educate their people, you know, they have exceptional universities and they really have high standards. And there's a lot of people who speak English in China. I mean, and frankly, I think there's more English speakers in China than there are Americans. Um, now, <laughs> of course it's, of course it's various levels, but I think, Broadly speaking, rule of thumb, there's 50 million people in China who speak English pretty well, and I mean, I mean, I mean, well enough that you can do business with. And so that's a lot of people, wow. and and they're excellent, and you know, we can you know work with them and engage with them, and, and, and sure, yes, like I learned a bit of Mandarin along the way, but it's always a bit choppy and not as eloquent as you know my Chinese colleagues who speak English on a very high level. Wow. Okay. I mean, and especially in the late nineties, that's impressive. So, um, so you were working at News Corp, you were in the, the, the media and the news industry, and then you decided to start this company called Shawei in, uh, 1999. And this was an aggregator for, uh, domestic news magazines, um, just generally news content. But there was also what was what I've read up on it says you know there there was a unique community and interactive features um 
Would you say that this was, this was a, there, there was some like platform dynamics going on with this business or would you say it was kind of more of like an aggregator of a few large kind of news conglomerates that you pulled together? Um, or did the platform kind of true platform stuff come later in your career or how would you describe Shaway? Yeah, you know, I, I think Shaway was a web 1.0 company. Oh, by the way, Shaway means brave shark in Chinese. Um, <laughs> and so, 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 so we definitely had a different name um, than all the other players who were trying to take over the sports industry. But I mean, we, yes, we aggregated content, but we also created content. I mean, we had a, a we had a huge editorial team because, because we realized as a market driven media company, we could do, we could be much more effective than, you know, the state driven, driven media companies in China. And so we had um, stringers and journalists all over the country writing about sports, interviewing people. So, so, so we were very much a content generation engine, but we also aggregated just like, you know, many of the hybrid models today do the same thing. Um, um, I mean, you know, you, I mean, was it a platform? I'm not sure because what we discovered with sports content is that it's like water. It goes to the point of least resistance. And so there's a lot of, and you know, there's a lot of water out there. And so we did run up against a number of competitors. I mean, our advantage is we were first. Um, we had a great name and we had a little bit more vision on how we thought the media industry in China would evolve. Um, you know, Mr. Murdoch once mentioned to me that, you know what, Fritz, we make money in the sports business. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Maybe I should do a sports startup. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, it's it, it pretty much how it started. I mean, were there network effects? I mean, they were, you could say they were branding related network effects possibly. Um, but, uh, but, but, but I suppose the barriers were not as high as we would have liked them to be. And so we had a number of other players, you know, trying to catch up. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, it was a great business, SoftBank, IDG, Intel, they were all investors, you know, Masasan from SoftBank, even in 1999, he was thinking about China and he invested in a number of companies. And obviously Alibaba was his most successful, but he invested in us and a few other players as well. And it, I mean, it reminds me of what you were saying about being first, right? There's a, a quotation here from you. There's too many smart people in China, too many people who can execute. There's no way you can compete just being a better operator. You have to be first. You have to do something that no one else is doing. If everyone is doing virtual reality, maybe you should be doing something else. Uh, and I think that goes to your point. It, probably that's, is that your kind of crown principle rule in, in China, maybe Southeast Asia as well? If you want to win, you have to be first. You have to be first. You have to be different. I mean, there's too many smart people in the world. And, 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 and you know, I, I think Chinese DNA, you know, people are really smart and they're really driven. And can you out-execute someone in their home market? Probably not. But can you be first? Sure. If you have a bit of vision and strategy. And, yeah, so I totally believe that. Yeah. So, anyway, it worked out pretty well. You were rolled up into Tom.com. $20 million acquisition. You were what, like 25 at the time, something like that. Um, roughly around there. Mid twenties. I'm a little, bit older, 20s. I'm a little okay. bit older than that. Anyway, yeah. I don't need to, I don't need to put these, you were in your twenties. You were doing just fine for yourself. This was your first startup business, right? Had it had a good exit, not a, 
I'm not working. I don't need to work for the rest of my life kind of exit, but a really strong exit. Um, how did, I mean, that's an, that's an amazing accomplishment. What, what do they call foreigners in China? I'm, I'm going to butcher it anyway, like Gaijo or something like that, or, um, yeah, right. Uh, yeah. Right. So the Cantonese, they would say Guaylo and for the Mandarin, yeah. they'd say Wai. Right. Exactly. So you come in, you have an exit. You had a, you had a couple co-founders on this. That's right. I had, I had a couple of co-founders. One was um, Malaysian and one was mainland Chinese. And so then you were working at uh, NetEase, which, which you were at, I think you were there for a couple of years, maybe post-acquisition, um, which is also an online portal of sorts, you know, pulling together a number of different content things and community things. And so then Chunar, the the big gorilla. Um, tell us about that. How did you, where, where was the kind of idea for inception on that? How did that all come together? I assume you didn't have Murdoch whispering in your ear about like travel is going to be a big thing. We got to do that too. Um, and yeah, so what's the, what's the background context there? Yeah. So, so we had a different inspiration. Um, I think there was a couple, um, you know, Christy boost out, um, you know, she works for CNN you know, she's one of the correspondents and she was um, interviewing this entrepreneur, Edward Tian, who's a famous Chinese entrepreneur. And she said, Edward Tian is a serial entrepreneur. That was the first time I heard that word. What serial entrepreneur? What does that mean? You know, well, he's done more than one startup. He's done two, three, four. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's what I need to do. You know, like I can't just do one startup. I have to do more than one. You know, like I, 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 I have to get out of working for the man. And, you know, although I had one successful company, I realized, you know what, you know, you have to be a serial entrepreneur. And so, so that was one inspiration. Um, and then, so me and my co-founders from the sports website, actually the same team, you know, we were, you know, we were chatting and talking and we were at a Starbucks at the Hong Kong airport express. I remember this very vividly. And we were saying, well, so what are we going to do? We're talking about it, talking about it. And then, and then the idea came up. I, th- I think it came from Douglas, one of my co-founders who said, well, maybe we should, maybe we should look at, you know, where does Google make its money? So back in 2004, Google was, you know, one of the hottest companies still is obviously. And it was like, okay, where does, if, if, if Google is this big, you know, this massive Leviathan, you know, where does it make its money? And even if you took a piece of it, even one small piece, you could also be, say, a mini Leviathan. I know that sounds that's kind of an oxymoron, but um, you know, we thought about it, and then we did some analysis, and we realized that travel was one of Google's biggest revenue verticals. So we thought, well, heck, if that's one of their biggest verticals, why can't we build a better mousetrap just in travel? You know, be better than Google in travel. You know, and, and that was really the genesis of, you know, how Chunar started. Awesome. Now, that was 2005. Um, the other major competitor, which we'll talk about more uh, in a minute, was C-Trip. But when I look at C-Trip's thing, it says C-Trip started in 99, but was C-Trip kind of doing like other stuff and they hadn't really focused on travel that much? Uh, and, and so you were, maybe you weren't exactly first, but you were pretty much neck and neck with them when you started, or would you say that they had a little head start? 
Yeah, so they were way ahead of us, but they had a different business model. So we always thought, um, so C-Trip is, is an online travel agency. And our whole idea was following the Google analogy, Google aggregates multiple agencies. And that's how we thought about it. Okay, we're a new model. You know, we're going to build a better mousetrap than Google. We're not competing with C-Trip. We're just aggregating you know, um, information from C-Trip and a wide range of other you know, travel companies into one larger offering to consumers. So that's how we thought about it was initially we never thought C-Trip was our competitor. Um, but what's funny in the world is once you get really big, everyone's your competitor. I mean, frankly, Google is the competitor to President Trump. They're the competitor to Amazon. They're the competitor to the fashion websites. They're competitor to everybody. And, mm -hmm. you know, because, because, because once you get big enough, you start bumping into everybody. That's what happened to us. You know, we were trying to collaborate with C-Trip. We worked with, with all the other online travel agencies and airlines and hoteliers and all that sort of stuff. But then once you get super, super big and dominant, you realize that they work for you. You don't work for them. And, you know, then we started becoming competitors. So could you buy a C-Trip, a flight through C-Trip off of Chunar in the early days? You could, absolutely. And, you know, they sued us, but uh, we included C-Trip on the platform, sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we felt, um, you know, in, in the early days, like our philosophy was, hey, we're a search engine. And we followed the nature of search. And the nature of search is you aggregate all the players. You have a wide array of offerings, which means that you're a proper search business. Yeah, that's how we thought about it. And it, it was actually clearly defined. It was, I mean, we had to work with the government and the legal authorities to kind of define exactly what the nature of search was. But that's how we started mm -hmm. again, because our genesis was, hey, Google's a search engine or a search engine. And where was Baidu in all of this? Yeah, I mean, sure, Baidu was there too. And, 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 and eventually Baidu was able to gain in prominence um, and, and, and obviously take Google's lunch. Uh, obviously, yeah. So, yeah. So, you're right. I mean, travel was one of Baidu's large revenue verticals as well. And would you say it was more like airlines or hotels? Or I mean, I assume that mix changed over time. But when I look at airlines, that supply is much more aggregated or consolidated, rather. And the hotels, there's probably some some big hotel players, but there's definitely more fragmentation on the hotel side. Uh, overall, at least, I don't know about initially, but how did you think about kind of supply fragmentation, or 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 was that even much of a, a factor at that point? Sure, it was. I mean, I, I guess I couldn't communicate it as clearly as as you've just communicated it, but yes, flights. I mean, there's only a few hundred airlines in the world. In China, there's maybe 20 major airlines. I guess. Um, I mean, there's six domestic and some of the foreign airlines, and so it was much more consolidated. Um, but what we discovered was um, there still was massive variation in price and offering. And so uh, and so really, you know, consumers needed a some sort of platform to help them make smarter decisions. In fact, our vision was we help consumers make better decisions. Really simple. Um, mm -hmm. Which is completely different than what C-Trep and Expedia and all the incumbent travel players were thinking. You know, they were thinking, how can we help airlines sell more? 
you know, that's how Secret thought about it. How can we help all these suppliers sell more? And we were like, how can we help customers make better decisions? So, so we were coming from, you could say, a different side right. of the universe, although we were, both of us were approaching the same point in the universe. You know, and I was just going to say, like on the hotel side, you're right, it's, 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 it's a bit more fragmented. Uh, we were lucky that when we started, there weren't as many chains, but then the chains started to merge and we were their partners and helping them, you know, in, in different ways and helping consumers navigate that. I heard a story. We talk about kind of like platform hacks. You know, you got to kind of fake it till you make it in the in the early days. You know, you may have one side of the ecosystem, but not both. And you need to do manual hacks to connect the dots in the in the early days, sometimes even in the later days, too, but especially in the early days. One story I heard, I don't know if this was true, might be about Chunar or might be C-Trip or might be both of you, is that um, someone would order a plane ticket off of the website and then literally a physical courier brought them the ticket, like hand delivered the ticket to them. It wasn't a, a digital ticket, but someone came to their hotel or wherever they had the office and said, oh, here you go. You just bought this thing online, but here's the ticket physically. Um, is that true? Yeah, that was did that stuff happen? Yes, it's true. That was C Trip was the you know, the founding company in that space. And so, so keep in mind in 2005 when we started Chunar, that was the year that the Chinese government said all tickets must be e-tickets. So they mandated it. And so, so we didn't know that. It was just we were lucky that the year we started our company was the year that the government mandated that. Kind of before that, 2000. 2001, two, three, four, whatever, you know, um, you could have these physical tickets. And so C-Trip, you know, enterprising, you know, entrepreneurs, they're like, okay, how do we take advantage of this? Well, if, if, if a customer wants to buy a ticket, we'll just deliver it to them. People are cheap. They had motor scooters, you know, they had some sort of route planning algorithm to get people, you know, and in <laughs> fact, I, I, mean, I remember using C-Trip. I remember I, I was at a Starbucks with a friend having a cup of coffee. I literally called C-Trip on their um, exceptional call center, bought the ticket. Someone just showed up at like at the Starbucks and delivered it to me and I paid them in cash. And so it worked. And, and so that was in the early days. It, it was kind of like, you know, you know, like a lot of these successful companies, including C-Trip, it's like, you know, we don't care if it's digital or whatever. I mean, you can scale people. I mean, I mean, you know, C-Trip's key insight was you can scale people you can scale processes. It doesn't have to be all digital, right? It doesn't have to be all machine driven. And, 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 and so, you know, they did a great job. I mean, we came along as Chunar a few years later when everything was digital. And so we started to disrupt the category, you know, starting with digital. So we didn't have to get our hands dirty with all that, you know, physical stuff. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's absolutely hilarious, but yeah, I mean, you got to You got to give the customer what they want. Right. And if the customer wins, the platform wins. Exactly. Um, so, Chunar, over a period of, uh, you, let's see, you went, you, you went public eight years later um, on the NASDAQ, but what were some of those, I mean, what were some of those, you know, what, is there a defining moment you would say getting from, from 05 to 13? where the company was on the line or you were, you were about to go say belly up or you just had to grit your teeth and grind. Um, and somehow you made it through. 
but are there any was there any kind of singular defining uh, moment in in that journey to IPO that that you can remember? Yeah, there's a few. Um, you know, for the first four years, I mean, the business was growing, but it had not captured the imagination of the markets of people. Um, and like, I remember people telling me, you know, why don't you do a social network? There's this guy Zuckerberg in the States doing that. Why don't you do that in China? That's what they were saying, you know, you know, so why are you focused on travel? Right. Um, although it was weird because it made so much sense that consumers, that consumers needed a tool to make better decisions, right. Not helping airlines to supply more products. Right. Um, but, but for the first four years, you know, I mean, the traction was okay, but like the thing is like, we weren't growing like great. I mean, like, sure, we're growing at three times a year, but you know, all the big social companies were going at, you know, like much faster. And, and so I, 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 I think, I wouldn't say we were stuck, but we were like growing moderately. We were going under the radar. Um, everyone who used the tool said, this is a great service. This is a real service that provides real value to consumers. I mean, we were helping consumers save lots of money for sure. Um, but, 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 but it wasn't growing like a Facebook or a MySpace or, or, or kind of whatever. Um, yeah, through basically Q3 of 2010, you'd raise an aggregate about 27 million US dollars. So, I mean, it's a chunk of money, but it's not the massive, hey, we're just flooded with insane amounts of demand kind of growth that you're talking about. Yeah, totally. And, you know, frankly, I mean, we spent... I mean, of, of all the money we raised, we only spent seven to go from zero to a billion, right? So um, it wasn't much money, right? I mean, you can be extremely capital efficient if the competition isn't there. <laughs> if the competition's there, then- <laughs> a, a billion in sales, right? No, just value. The, I mean, the value of the company. Value. Right? Um, so it was profitable. I mean, or, or you had, you know, you so were- So we had some profitable quarters, but we were just growing right. moderately. Um, we, you know, we were just smart with our capital. We had to be more creative. We weren't just, you, you know, frankly, if, if, if you have too much capital, like you're just not creative. I mean, here's a question. Why do all the movies in Hollywood suck? I mean, literally 90%, 95% of the movies suck. It's because there's too much money. And so these directors and producers and writers, I mean, I mean, no one's really creative. I mean, you know, um, it's just really bad. And however, if, if, if you have a constraint, i.e. capital, and maybe there's a people constraint and some other constraints, you, you, you're actually just much more creative in how you do things and you actually become much more efficient. And, you know, and, and, and we had a constraint in that case, you know, we had not captured the imagination of some of the other verticals and, and, you know, that allowed us to, you could say, operate under the radar. We were, you know, I would say we were, you know, not on purpose, but we were in stealth just because no one bothered us or no one bothered to look at what we were doing. And then, and then finally, when they figured out we were valuable, it was too late, right? We're just like taking off, right? right. And, um, and, and maybe one of the key turning points could have been when one of the key large, you know, airlines in China told us that we controlled a third of their business was coming through our platform. And we thought, oh, we control a third of the business of one of the largest airlines in China, then that must mean we must be pretty big. <laughs> yeah, that must mean we're a pretty big deal. Now, would you, so would you say there was 
It was more maybe about like a, a timing thing, consumer expectation, just kind of the, the consumer readiness, maybe. Um, there wasn't kind of any magic kind of breakthrough. Um, I mean, and you just were able to slowly, relatively slowly compared to the socials, let's say, just continue to build up this business. Um, but then for Baidu to then lead the $300 million round in you in 2011, uh, was that just more of the same thing? You, you know, eventually, was there anything that Baidu basically said, look, I'm not going to try and compete with these people anymore. I've got to partner up with them. Yeah, sure. We were eating their lunch for sure. We were killing them in, within travel, right? And that was their key revenue vertical. And um, in fact, we weren't even getting any much traffic from them. So they knew that they had to work with us. I mean, and, 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 and we obviously had choices. And, 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 and at the time, we thought, well, Baidu is an engineering-driven company, and so are we. And so it seemed like kind of a complementary fit. Um, yep. And, um, yeah, and so, you know, they pretty much um, kind of allowed the company to, you know, pretty much operate on its own. Um, and, and kind of follow a, a very singular vision, right? Which is to help consumers make better travel decisions. Now, was there any deeper integration with Baidu? Like if I went to Baidu and I punched in a travel search, do they give you preferential treatment on the on the listings and that kind of stuff? Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Good. I would hope, you know, $300 million. You got to get some, some other goodies thrown in. Um, so, so, you know, that really then you had, you had that breakout, um, you, uh, you know, it was interesting because just yesterday we were talking about Expedia. So I don't know if you followed this, but Barry Diller basically, you know, fired the CEO, CFO of Expedia. Um, they missed earnings pretty badly this past quarter. They blamed it on Google. So to TripAdvisor, Miss Earnings, and and you, what you see are these the large, you know, the large platforms like a Google, um, are are now once they hit kind of monopoly like mature monopoly status, they start start to take advantage of the suppliers, their producers. In this case, you know, other third party websites like travel being you know their biggest money maker. So I was looking at the Google search rankings yesterday on the show. It took two full page scrolls. Until you get to the organic search results on Google for for travel. Um, and you can just see how, right? The first page is all ads. The second page is their hotel booking little widget. The third page are now organic search results. So what was really interesting, though, is what you're saying that Baidu really wasn't giving you much traffic, that you were able to become a destination uh, of sorts for people looking to do travel, which reminds me of what when you know when we were looking at um alibaba and the, and the infamous war between alibaba and baidu where alibaba blocked baidu from scraping any of their product listings cuz they had the same philosophy which was i want to be the the you know the 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 shopping destination um and i don't want people to go to baidu first and then come to uh, taobao or you know whichever marketplace it was um, but you didn't go to those extremes to block Baidu. Somehow you were just able to build a sticky enough experience that really resonated with customers and they kept coming back to you. Um, 
Is is all of that assumption kind of pretty spot on, or am I missing something there? That's exactly right. Um, on one hand, you know, like if you talk to the senior executives at Expedia, even the ones who are still remaining, you know, they'll tell you the biggest competitor is Google, right? It's not Booking.com, right? I mean, absolutely, because as I mentioned before, once you get big, you're everyone's competitor, um, and, and so so. So like spot on on that, you know, two, three pages. I mean, I mean, obviously Google's being sued in some markets because it's, it, it, it could be viewed as anti-competitive, you know, and maybe they're sacrificing user experience a bit, possibly. Um, kind of in a mobile world, you know, I mean, there isn't much real estate anymore, right? And so, and, and Google has all, all, I mean, has all their own products. It's kind of difficult for someone else to kind of squeeze through. Um, and, and so maybe from Google's perspective, they're going to have to think carefully about, you know, publishing versus editorial, right? Um, and, you know, user experience versus monetizing on their own. Um, in China, you're absolutely right. Jack Ma's a genius. You know, he didn't want Baidu scraping because, because he didn't want consumers to get used to the fact that Baidu would be the gateway, right? And, and obviously 50% of or 60% of Google's revenue and Baidu's revenue is e-commerce related. And if Alibaba controls e-commerce, there's no way that they, they, they would want someone else to be the gateway. And so, you know, Jack was absolutely correct in, you know, blocking Baidu, right? Um, and, 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 and even today, obviously, you know, Alibaba's um, search business and they have a search business, you know, you could buy ads, you know, it, it, it's almost like a search alternative by buying ads on Alibaba is, you know, um, even bigger than Baidu, right? You know, that revenue stream is bigger than Baidu's revenue stream, you know, just, and the concern of course in the States is, you know, if Bezos has his way, he wants Amazon to do the same thing, right? You know, and in, 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 I'm sure in this case, Bezos is probably going to copy Jack in some ways and, you know, do that. And a- Amazon has built up. Uh, just like that in the last couple of years, a very big advertising business. They've actually started to take market share from Google. Uh, I think last year it was a $5 billion business and it's growing super quickly. So they're definitely following that playbook. Yeah, totally. And like, and the funny thing is, and and they haven't done any work and they've made $5 billion. Can you imagine if they do some work (laughs) on it? (laughs) Yeah. You turn on the switch and 5 billion. It's, it's not bad. Um, Totally. My, my opinion of it is, when you become that large tech monopoly status like a Google or an Amazon, you you have two customers because you're a platform. You, the regular traditional consumer, yes, they're your customer, but so would a Chunar be a customer to Baidu? So would a C-Trip be a customer? So would Expedia, Booking, TripAdvisor, Yelp be customers to Google search? And they're paying them. And And when the platform gets really big, the platform doesn't take advantage of the consumer customer. They take advantage of the producer, the supplier customer. And so at least in the U.S. for antitrust regulation, we look at, do you, do you put the customer at a disadvantage? And I think what all the FTC, the, the DOG, DOJ get wrong is they're looking at the traditional customer, the consumer. What they don't realize is platforms have two customers and the new customer is the supplier. And if you look at what Microsoft got in trouble for in the 90s, it's the same thing. It's on the supply side. And I, and I do think if you want to try and compete a more, uh, to facilitate a more competitive environment on Google search, you can absolutely start to say, hey, is it fair? Or am I promoting a competitive environment if the first two pages of Google search 
are basically all paid for ads that you have to pay the toll keeper to get access to. No, I don't think that's actually facilitating a competitive environment because all, as you said, right, Expedia, Booking, Trip, all of them are saying, I need to get off of Google and I need customers to come direct. It it completely like gets rid of the whole point of a search engine and their and their growth is now, you know, plateauing, at least on on the top line side in terms of usage. And so they've got to crank revenue and, and EBITDA from somewhere. And that means I squeeze supply. I net net, I don't think it's a good thing from a competition standpoint. Um, and it's an easy way for Google to beat earnings at the expense of really having to truly do business model innovation. Um, I don't know if you have thoughts on that, but that's my rant yeah, on I mean, it. Yeah, I mean, like, I agree. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, when the competition authorities or whatever they're called, right, the F, whatever the Federal Trade Commission gets involved, there's a, I, I think it's, I think there's multiple angles. There's a lot of nuance. We have to be smart about it, right? And we have to think carefully um, about, um, you know, platform, for example, if everyone goes to mobile, maybe Google is less prominent, right? Of course, they own Android too. That's a problem, right? right? But, uh, you know, uh, but yeah, we, we have to think, I, I'm like, I'm glad you said it, right? There's like different types of clients and customers. And we have to take all those into account. Um, you know, I mean, maybe right now it's good for consumers, but when someone has market power, they're tempted to just help themselves, right? And all the stuff, you know, do no evil and all that sort of stuff. I mean, that's like, well, okay, then let's put it in the law, right? I mean, like that's right. in the law, right? But but obviously, like they don't want that, right? And, and, and you know, um, you know, and like governments, you, you know, I mean, frankly, um, I mean, you can make an argument that. Um, the just the allocation and distribution of information in a society requires local accountability. Local accountability means either local ownership of that entity or some sort of laws and regulations. And in, in, in unfortunately, you know, Google is everywhere in the world except for a few countries, just like Facebook is. But you know, you know, Zuckerberg doesn't care about people who live in Malaysia or frankly hong kong or taiwan he only cares i mean i mean frankly i mean you know his comments and everything i mean like these mega platform owners only care about themselves frankly and you know sometimes you know we need local accountability right you know just like the banking system right i mean how come there's banking laws because you can't take someone's deposit in one country and just blow it in like another country right i mean we i mean we, we have laws and regulations so that the you could say the distribution and allocation of capital requires local accountability and the same thing with information and yes you know like like we all love the benefits of global scale like google and facebook are great because they've achieved global scale hence the cost is much lower and we have all these great services i suppose right but you know you know you know political discourse and information and things that are valuable to society you know society you know kind of go out the window i think unless there's some sort of local accountability right so if you're in france and the you know google france somehow is doing things that are more accountable to what it's important to french people for example right and you know that doesn't exist and like i would go so as far as to say is 
academic studies in the United States at UCLA and Stanford very specifically have shown that countries around the world that have local accountability for um, the allocation of information, i.e. their media businesses, tend to be more democratic. They tend to be more accountable to the people. You know, they, you know, they tend to be better governed. And, you know, these guys in the Valley, you know, they're like, yes, scale machines, you know, like if you disagree with them, the first thing they say is you don't get it. Right. Isn't that what they say in the Valley? You don't get it. You know, I'm a genius and you don't get it. Right. Um, You know, but, 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 you know, but, but I think the reality is, is, you know, you know, like we're going to have to balance, I think the benefits of global scale and I'm a beneficiary of it with, you know, local accountability. And, you know, in this case, you know, the Chinese are smarter than everyone else because they're like, forget this. We want to control our own information infrastructure. Right. And because, you know, because they think, hey, you know, the people at Baidu, Tencent, Alibaba, Meituan, ByteDance, all these, you know, you know, guys are going to be a little bit more accountable to them, you know, and to what's, in, what's important to the Chinese people than, than maybe whatever Zuckerberg's values are, right? And, and, and to me, I think it's an important issue. And, and frankly, the academic studies that were published in the United States show this, but, 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 but I don't think you'll ever find them on Google, right? <laughs> that makes sense. Well, no, I I agree with you. So I've said, look, tech protectionism, China's done it better than anyone. And guess what? Do you think that you would have six out of the top ten largest tech companies in the world being Chinese if the Chinese government didn't put didn't incubate its ecosystem from the large tech U.S. tech companies now monopolies? From coming into China. I'm not saying that to discredit the ingenuity and the innovation and the drive and the hunger of the Chinese entrepreneurs. But what I am saying is they help to create that environment to level the playing field and make it a domestic, a local activity. And I think it's absolutely helped for the better. And 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 I think you're starting to see maybe like an in India try to take some blend of both of this, you know be a little bit more open, but have some rules in place. We've kind of seen it around like marketplace rules that they put on, um, on what did Mark, what did Walmart buy uh, in India? Flipkart. Um, yeah, yeah, Flipkart. Flipkart. So you can't be a retailer and a marketplace if you're a foreign uh, owned entity, you know, so they're, they're playing around with it, but I'd say they've absolutely done a great job with it. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I give them credit for having put that all together, which I think is is part of your point here. So I'm I'm totally with you on that. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the funny thing is, you know, shame on the Europeans for not doing this, right? You know, just having Amazon. It's the last and- generation in Europe. We, we So we have the ETF, Plat. 10% of the companies in Plat are from Europe. And a third of them, it should be more, but they're not all OTC. There are, some of them are OTC, are from China. It's, yeah, it's unfortunate. And again, you know, and, and, and this and this is completely separate from, you know, political issues. I mean, like, do I agree with what's going on in the region and China? That? Well, yeah, you know, like I have my concerns, like a lot of people do. And um, but like, I get that people want to control their own destiny, you know, kind of like regardless of the politics and human rights and all that sort of stuff, you know, and shame on the Europeans or the Brazilians and the Mexicans for not doing it, right? And just controlling it, just setting up the barriers, I think. 
Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I think the, the bank analogy you mentioned is a really good one, too. I've said that you have banks, you call them systemically important because they impact a lot of other stuff. There's no reason that a lot of these big tech companies shouldn't also be considered systemically important. And then with that, you'd probably have a lot of that local responsibility uh, regulation that would come with that. It makes a ton of sense. Totally. Yeah, exactly right. That's the best way to describe it. I mean, it's good you said it that way. It's good. Yeah. Nick's uh, former career as uh, an economist, um, you know, coming into play here. But so anyway, I love the I love the conversation about competition. And and I love the way that the competition plays itself out in China right around 2015. um, So you were now public. But you had you had these like massive platform mergers, right? You had the the two DDs for for ride sharing merge. You had the the Yelp like kind of platforms like Dian Ping and and Meituan merge, and then Chunar and C Trip did this share swap, which is all kinds of interesting. I've never seen this one before. Um, who came up with this? But basically, just to give the recap for everyone. There was a, a share swap and voting share swap, which means the two companies were still separate, but you essentially had a truce and you had different levels of ownership and voting rights. But the point was that you both had a, a carried a, a, a real vested interest in one another. And so you were going to take down the competition a notch um, and uh, and have this truce, which was not a merger, but kind of like the impact of these mergers that you saw, kind of. <laughs> um, so it, it goes back to the point that platforms have this winner-take-all dynamic, and there's only one or two dominant winners. How would you describe how all of that came together, the the Chunar, C-Trip, share swap, um, that kind of truce, so to speak? Really interesting. Yeah, like I'm not, yeah, like I'm not an investment banker, but I guess they thought that yeah, that structure made the most sense. Um, but you know, I I I I think on one hand, you know, we want to. It, it it was obvious that we had to have a combined platform to achieve some of those scale benefits. Um, you know, some of those winner take all benefits that you've highlighted. Um, at the same time, are we able to encourage the animal spirits of like individual entities, right? Um, you know, that's what Barry Jeller has faced with at Expedia for years. He's encouraged silo thinking, i.e. the animal spirits of, you know, the various entities just fight it out. He didn't care and, and it worked well. And then, you know, and, and Mark, you know, the former, um, you know, CEO thought, you know what, maybe we can extract some benefits if somehow we, push back on those animal spirits a little bit and try to achieve some scale benefits instead. And that led to all sorts of execution challenges and impact on earnings and stuff like that. Right. Um, and, and, you know, and, and, and so I, I, I think that was going through their mind when, kind of when they considered that, um, you know, that sort of mega merger. Um, and, um, you know, unfortunately after that merger, you know, and it, it really was a merger. It's just, you're right. There was just some like investment banker approach, right? Maybe for <laughs> legal, legal and tax reasons, it was done this way. Right. Um, um, I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert, um, um, but then um, unfortunately this company called Meituan started emerging 
which is also very strong in travel. And they've done an, an exceptional job and they work with booking.com now. And, um, and you know, and like Wang Shin, the founder is just an amazing guy. And, and then Alibaba with their Fliggy, you know, which is, which is their travel platform. You know, uh, they continue to make investments in travel. And so, although, you know, it's not like, you know, like the two major players who were fighting it out, Chuna and C-Trip decided to have some sort of detente um, you know, you know, I, I think we only had a five minute break before we started seeing, you know, some of the other guys, you know, like popping up. Well, I guess it's probably a good thing that they, that they did that then to take on these other gorillas coming into the space. So, um, you know, let's, let's look at what you're doing now. Um, you are, you, you invest, um, in, with Queens road capital, your, your VC fund. Um, you're you're putting dollars into live streaming. You're very big on education, uh, healthcare, both in China and Southeast Asia. You have a number of really interesting portfolio businesses that you've you've already put dollars into that have at an early stage and have gone on to raise um, you know many others subsequent rounds of capital. But um, besides space and ET. What gets you, you know, what are you really excited about from an investing philosophy? Is it still those main areas? You know, what do you see the future in, in China and Southeast Asia or the trends you're most excited about today? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I'm super excited about education. I think, um, you know, governments do a bad, and anytime governments are involved in anything, they tend to do a bad job. And, you know, because of, um, actually, I guess because of social networks, I, I, I know we were just dissing them. You know they're able to keep for-profit businesses more accountable too, right? So I guess that's good. I guess that's a good thing about Zuckerberg. You know all these reviews and rankings, meaning even if you're a for-profit education company, you know well, like you, you you have to exhibit good behavior still. Um, and so I think, um, you know, parents are realizing they have to take more control of their kids' education. It isn't just you ship them off to K twelve and that's it, and then the and kind of the state is responsible for your kids' education. Now it's more and more, you know, parents have to be more involved. And then so there's tons of interesting companies and approaches popping up, you know, whether they're assessment tools, new forms of, you know, educating kids and classes and all that sort of stuff. And so, so, I, so I think private education is just a mega opportunity globally. And, you know, it, it, you know, in, in some ways, you know, that, what was it called? Uh, Varsity Blue or Blue Shield, whatever that thing was in Newport Beach when they arrested that guy and all those Hollywood people. Um, what was that? You know, that guy Singer, you know, you know, that scandal about getting into USC and all of those schools. Yes, um, yes. The the paying yeah. off the professors. Yep. Yeah. Someone right, paid $500,000 exactly. to get into USC, which, which I actually think yeah. that's a good thing for USC. I don't know who's paying half a million dollars to get into USC, but... Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah it, 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 was, it, it, was, it was certainly a compliment to USC, that's for sure. But uh, <laughs> you know, like I kind of feel like, uh, you know, that that that's you know reflective of parents and other stakeholders just having a high desire that their kids are are, are really educated, right? And they're involved in in this case, getting involved in great institutions, but it could be learning languages and other things. I mean, there's just this deep desire. And because a lot of people have lost faith in, you know, the public institutions and they've lost faith in the faith in the fairness of the system as well. 
you know, like, I mean, I mean, the last thing I'm going to do is sound like Elizabeth Warren, that would be horrible. But, you know, I mean, you know, we, 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 we certainly have lost faith in our public institutions. And, and like, my bet isn't to give the public institutions more money and just taxing everyone. And I'm kind of the opposite, you know, let's have the private sector take some of this, right? And because, you know, they've proven they do a great job. I mean, JP Morgan's a private company. Facebook's a private company. Google's a private company. I mean, they've Uber, they've all provided exceptional value to consumers, right? And so, you know, and so I'm super excited about that, you know, broad category. I mean, that's one area that I'm, I'm excited about. And I've always said that, you know, China, you see China leading the U.S. in terms of platform trends in a number of areas. Um, certainly, we've seen it historically with messaging. Um, Alibaba is bigger than Amazon in, in a GMV standpoint. Um, other areas like healthcare, but maybe education is also in there as well. You put money into this Shang company, but it's kind of taking like a marketplace approach to, um, say, education. And where you don't really see, particularly in the U.S., and, and, and for both healthcare and education, you don't really see that many platform companies there. I mean, the big boys, the the Google and Apples are trying to get into healthcare. They're also doing stuff in education, but I wouldn't say there's much of a, like a really strong marketplace approach as of yet. Um, this company looks super interesting. Uh, you know, how does that work? I'm sure you're doing other things in education, but it's just interesting to think about a marketplace model in education. Um, how would you kind of give us the brief overview on this? Yeah, you know, Joyshong, you know, we have 10,000 sellers on the platform. They're all private education companies, everything from certification programs, language learning, study abroad, internships even. They're all on the platform. Um, so consumers can discover, rank, and actually purchase various products. Um, I mean, it's amazing to see that many private education companies, right? I mean, I mean, New Oriental, which is one of our investors, obviously, it's probably the world's biggest private education company. You know, and obviously, you know, Shindongfang or New Oriental, it's all about English language and test prep, right? But that's massive, right? And, you know, Michael Yu, the founder, he's a visionary and, you know, it's just amazing, right? Um, and, um, and there's a bunch of other companies. I mean, I mean what, I, what, what is it? There's probably, what, 10 or 15 NASDAQ-listed, Hong Kong-listed Chinese education companies. It's, it's, it's way more than the States, right? Um, and so things are happening. I mean, part of it's cultural. People just care about education more. They value it a lot more, right? Um, and part of it is we're in this emerging market, which is just growing by leaps and bounds and consumers and parents are willing to try new things. And then people are just highly ambitious, right? You know, they, um, you know, studies have shown that Chinese are much more optimistic about their future. Anyone who's optimistic about their future is more willing to invest in the future. And so we see that too. And I think all that is just coming together. Absolutely. Okay. So we're going a little bit over. It's been fantastic having you, Fritz. Last one. Now, this one's awesome. So this is kind of like saying, okay, you've built your businesses. I don't know if you're going to become a founder again for anything. You've got, you've got a pretty good situation figured out here. You're, you're, you're investing in a number of businesses. You're moving a number of portfolios forward. But let's talk about Melon. Um, and so you see a lot of tech founder billionaire types looking at space, 
you know, whether, whether it's the Bezos and now um, Richard Branson, you, the, you know, the Larry and Sergey big with uh, Verily and trying to kind of invest in um, technology to live forever, basically. Ray Kurzweil, all these kinds of, you know, kind of like uh, I'm a I'm a platform tech founder. And what are the 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 the, the literally the moonshot, the space shot um, initiatives that I'm working on now? You have Melon. Um, which, which is a conference that I think, I don't know if it's yours, but you've helped bring together people to talk about, uh, extraterrestrial life. Um, and I'll be the first one to say, I absolutely think there are other life forms out there. It's just such a big universe. We don't know really anything about it. Um, you know, our knowledge is here. There's so much stuff that we don't really understand, even just about our own world, let alone this thing called the universe. Um, I think it's out there. You may call me, you know, people may call me crazy, whatever. Um, but wh- what are your interests? Wh- what are your interests when it comes to space, um, extraterrestrial life, these kinds of things? I'm really interested in it. Yeah, you know, um, when I was a kid, I, I, I guess I loved all that sort of stuff. And, you know, sometimes, you know, life gives you a chance to follow some of the passions that, that you know, that you had when you were a kid, right? And Mellon was, you know, it's it just it's just the first step in that direction. It was a conference which we brought in scientists and sci-fi writers and thought leaders. And I recently joined the SETI Institute as one of the board of trustees. And so we're, you know, doing a lot of, you know, and obviously SETI is based in Mountain View, and we have 100 scientists, and they're all focused on whether it's astrobiology or looking for techno signatures or planetary formation or origin of life stuff, and. Um, and so um yeah so i mean i'm like like intellectually it's amazing i i think um you know when you're five years old you're you know you're only fascinated by a few things right aliens dinosaurs volcanoes um spaceships stuff like that and you know given the chance to you know explore some of those and um and i, I was always a big fan of seti you know like even 20 years ago and I've just been, you know, grateful that, you know, Bill Diamond and Seth Shostak and Jill Tarter from the SETI Institute were able to welcome me to kind of like participate in, you know, their adventure and their vision. And, um, you know, and, and like you, you know, I, I mean, I, I believe that, um, like we're not alone in the universe, you know, there's a hundred billion or 200 billion galaxies and every galaxy has two to 500 billion stars and every star on average has a few planets. I think we know that. And there's a lot of research being done at MIT, even Google's and, you know, even Sergey and Larry, you know, we, we, we have to appreciate that, you know, they seeded at this amazing telescope called the test telescope TESS, which is managed by MIT. And, you know, they're looking for planets within our neighborhood and, and the government's getting involved in, you know, with like the, you know, James Webb telescope, which is being developed by Northrop, you know, Grumman, and that's supposed to launch in a year or so. And, and so there's all sorts of cool stuff. And, and so on one hand, it, you know, it meets our need as, you know, I mean, human beings, you know, we have a need to explore. And we have a need to be creative. We have a need, of course, to affiliate with people like us, you know, like all that silly social stuff, but, you know, and, and we have a need to achieve, I think. You know, and hopefully we can do all those in some sort of you know interesting combination. And, and yeah, so 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 I'm excited about it. I mean, 
you know, I, I think, um, you know, Seth Shostak, you know, the senior astronomer at the SETI Institute likes to talk about, so, so he calls it the real estate theory, like of the universe. It's like, this is this huge universe, right? Massive. And like, why would you build all this real estate, but only have one tenant, right? <laughs> you know, that's how he thinks about it. Right. <laughs> and, and it, it makes total sense to me. Right. And, and so like, we're just, so we're just right at the start, by the way, we're just right at the beginning of, of this, um, you know, you know, search and, um, and because of new forms of technology and new science, um, you know, to, to, you know, to, you know to, to give you an example, um, in 1995 was the first time scientists could definitively prove that there were planets outside of our own solar system, meaning planets from like, orbiting other stars. That's 1995. So all this Star Trek and George Lucas and Star Wars, you know, where we had planets and spaceships and all that sort of stuff. Well, you know, I mean, that was all theoretical, right? <laughs> But, but, but only in 1995 did we actually, you know, like two scientists in Switzerland were, were, were able to prove that, right? And of course, they won a Nobel Prize for it. Um, and now we've discovered, what, 5,000 plus planets and with only looking at like a drop in the sky. And so there's going to be tons more. And, and so this is like, this is a massive renaissance for planetary scientists, you know, to just you know, really understand our environment beyond our planet and possibly life and, you know, answer some of those big questions that, you know, I mean, you know, way back to the ancient Greeks, they've been thinking about. We're going to leave it there, Fritz. That's a fantastic note to end this on. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Enjoy your evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Fritz. Uh, dialing in from Hong Kong. Thanks again for joining us. Such an amazing uh, just story, career, uh, you know, and I'm sure there's going to be much, much more to come and we look forward to following it. So thanks for joining us. Have a great evening. Gentlemen, thanks. All the best. Okay, that's it. That's a wrap. That's winner take all. Early morning session. Hope you appreciated it. That one was awesome. On Monday, we're going to have... Uh, D.A. Wallach, a uh, noted and very prominent uh, healthcare biotech investor, join us uh, Monday evening, 6 p.m. Eastern. Don't miss out on that. That's going to be uh, also a very fun one to join in. So talk to you soon.